You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. The 49ers broke my heart. I'm still actually a little bit hoarse because it took two days for my vocal cords to realize just how sad they were after screaming at a football game for four hours. I had a lot of Pliny the Younger. I built a headboard. So I now, as a 34-year-old woman, have a grown-up bed with a headboard. Um, I've been toying with the idea of getting one forever, but I finally found one I liked that wasn't like a thousand dollars. So very happy about that. Um, But yeah, that's pretty much it. Chill week overall, just busy working and doing plenty of the younger stuff. (laughs) I didn't manage to get into a theater this week. I had all my nights called for, but I have been working my way through the Oscar nominated films. So not a movie theater movie review, but a movie review. I watched The Color Purple yesterday as I'm recording this, and I actually really enjoyed it. The cinematography wasn't great for a movie musical. It was a little too wide in sections. I saw what they were trying to do. It just doesn't work for a movie. It harkened back too much to like old timey movies when they were still trying to figure out how shots worked. But other than that, really enjoyed it. I do still think it's absolutely crazy that anyone looked at the actual story of The Color Purple. If you're familiar with it at all, it's very dark. And uh, saw like, hey, you know what would be really good about this? Make it a musical. So, yeah. I did enjoy it, though, and it is on Max now. Streaming, HBO Max, whatever it's called. For the Criterion Collection pick of the week, we've got Spy Number 772, which is Blind Chance. This is a Polish film that shows three different outcomes of a man after he chases after a train. So like the three possibilities his life could have taken, given whether or not he makes this train because he's at a turning point in his life. It's pretty innovative for its time. The editing style is super different from U.S. films, so it kind of gives you exposure to a different style of filmmaking which is always good for you, even though sometimes it feels like you're eating your vegetables. But overall, I dug it. It's definitely a trope that's been used quite a bit in American films and like famously run Lola Run and like Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow, like that kind of thing. So early, early version of that. And now on to this week's topic. This week, an actor who found success in the Western genre a little later in his career, James Jimmy Stewart. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. The gentleman stands guilty, as charged. And I believe I speak for every member when I say that no one cares to hear what a man of his condemned character has to say about any section of any legislation before this house. Thank you. Order, gentlemen. Mr. President, I stand guilty as framed because section 40 is graft. And I was ready to say so. I was ready to tell you that a certain man in my state, a Mr. James Taylor, wanted to put through this dam for his own profit. A man who controls a political machine. 
and controls everything else worth controlling in my state. Yes, and a man even powerful enough to control congressmen. And I saw three of them in his room the day I went up to see him. Well, the Senator yield. No, sir, I will not yield. And this same man, Mr. James Taylor, came down here and offered me a seat in this Senate for the next 20 years if I voted for a dam that he knew and I knew was a fraud. But if I dared to open my mouth against that dam, he promised to break me in two. All right, I got up here and I started to open my mouth and the long and powerful arm of Mr. James Taylor reached into this sacred chamber and grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. President, a point of order. Mr. President. James Maitland Stewart was born on May 20th, 1908 in Indiana, Pennsylvania, the eldest child and only son born into the upper middle class family of a hardware store owner and an organist pianist for the local Presbyterian church. Music was a big part of the Stewart household, and James's father allowed a customer who couldn't pay his tab to cover it with an old accordion, which Jimmy learned how to play. The young man was also fascinated by stunt pilots, known as barnstorming pilots, which were popular after World War I. As a youth, Jimmy paid $15, about $250 in today money, for a 15-minute flight with one of these pilots, despite reservations from his parents. After the flight, Jimmy returned to the Earth, a changed young man. He would keep a scrapbook of aviation events from that day forward, and eventually he would get his commercial pilot's license as well. Young James was not a great student. He had his overactive imagination to thank for those poor grades at the Pennsylvania prep school he attended. He was also busy as a member of the track team. He was the art editor of the school yearbook. He was also in the Glee Club and discovered drama during this era of his life. He also played football, but was on the third string team due to his lanky frame, which bummed out his dad real hard. During his summer's home, the future actor would work as a brickloader and later as a magician's assistant. He remained passionate about aviation, with his interest boosted by Charles Lindbergh's first solo transatlantic flight, but abandoned his dreams of being a pilot at his father's insistence. Jimmy graduated high school a year late due to a bout with scarlet fever, and he was accepted into Princeton, despite his meh grades, but his dad was an alumni, so I'm sure that helped, where he got a degree in architecture. He excelled in college and was given an opportunity to further his education, specializing in airport design, airport terminal design more specifically, but instead decided to join a summer stock company to pursue acting. That summer, Jimmy played bit parts along future actors, including Henry Fonda. At the end of the summer, a group of them moved to New York to pursue stage work, where the two were briefly broke actors in the same dingy apartment chasing their pipe dreams. Jimmy debuted on Broadway in a brief run of Carrie Nation, and a few weeks later he appeared as a chauffeur in the comedy Goodbye Again, in which he had a walk online. He was only in the show for like three or four minutes. Even with that small amount of time, he managed to get some attention. One critic said, quote, Mr. James Stewart's chauffeur comes on for three minutes and walks off to a round of spontaneous applause. Despite those positive early reviews, several years of disappointment followed to the point where Jimmy considered going back to school to further his education. He was, however, convinced to continue acting after he was cast in the lead role of Yellow Jack in 1934, in which he played a soldier in a yellow fever experiment. Jimmy received massive praise from the critics, but the play wasn't popular with audiences and the show was closed within six months. After another couple of modest hits on stage, Jimmy worked up enough attention to get quote-unquote discovered by an MGM talent agent. 
As the legend goes, the actor received a telegram in 1954 telling him to, quote, report to Hollywood, part available. So he went to Hollywood with Fonda in tow. Jimmy's first Hollywood role was a small part in 1935's The Murder Man. The movie did not do very well, but he was offered a seven-year contract with MGM nonetheless. The studio decided that the lanky actor with the slow Midwestern drawl would never be a leading man, but rather he could take up supporting roles. This wasn't exactly what anybody wanted to hear in Jimmy's camp, so in response, his agent managed to get him loaned out to other studios to continue his client's career chasing after being a leading man. When he was at his home studio, however, Jimmy would be thrown into all different kinds of films, sports dramas, period pieces, musicals. They were just trying to figure out what the hell this lanky dude was supposed to do. Like they knew he was talented, but they're not sure. They weren't sure like what roles he would excel in and what would get audiences to come and pay to see him. They recognized that they had something. They just weren't sure what. Jimmy's second MGM film was the musical Rosemarie from 1936, which got him cast in seven films the same year, notably after The Thin Man. He also received crucial help from an old college cohort, Margaret Sullivan, who rallied hard for him to be her leading man in the universal romantic comedy Next Time We Love from 1936. The film was a box office success and earned mostly positive reviews, leading Jimmy to be noticed by critics and MGM executives alike. The New York Times called him, quote, a welcome addition to the roster of Hollywood's leading men. Over the next several years, though, Jimmy appeared in more varied kinds of roles like supporting and main, received good reviews, but despite this still was only seen as a modestly successful B-movie actor. He was loaned out to RKO for the film Vivacious Lady, but the production was shut down for several months in 1937 because Jimmy was hospitalized for an illness. It's never been disclosed what that illness was. RKO initially wanted to recast him, but then they canceled the film. But then the stage play on which the film was based was getting buzz and Ginger Rogers was playing the stage role and they wanted her the film role. So their hands were kind of tied. So then the film got uncanceled and then Jimmy was recast. So the movie got made ultimately at the end of the day. When Vivacious Lady finally released in 1938, it was a critical and commercial success and led to Jimmy working in rom-coms. The tide turned for Jimmy when he was lent out to Columbia to play the lead role in Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You from 1938. Jimmy plays the son of a banker who falls in love with a woman from a poor and eclectic family. This was a Frank Capra film at the height of his career, and he had been looking for a different kind of leading man for this film, and he believed he found it with Jimmy. According to Capra, Jimmy was one of the best actors ever to appear on the screen, always understood his characters on a deep level, and therefore required next to no direction. You Can't Take It With You became the fifth most successful film of that year and won the Best Picture Oscar. The first three films Jimmy appeared in in 1939 were a little lackluster, but his fourth film, which saw him back with Frank Capra, was the political comedy slash drama Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Jimmy played a naively optimistic senator thrown into the political arena. It garnered critical praise and became the third highest grossing film of the year. For his portrayal, Jimmy received his first nomination for the Academy Award for Best Actor. 
This film also established the mannerisms of his on-screen persona. In a scene where the character does a filibuster in Congress, audiences got an uninterrupted look at Jimmy's acting prowess. As a result of all of this, he was famous enough that comedians began imitating his signature drawl. You heard some of it at the break from this scene. He has a very specific voice, <clears throat> as I do today because I am still very raspy. Jimmy appeared in what is likely the first anti-Nazi film produced in Hollywood, which was 1940's The Mortal Storm. He played a member of a couple that is torn apart due to Hitler's rise to power. Despite this, the film failed to make any real impact as it was only about this couple and not at the uh, broader issues at hand involving World War II. Wrapping up 1940 was the comedy The Philadelphia Story, in which Jimmy played a nosy, fast-talking reporter sent to cover the wedding of a socialite with the help of her ex-husband. The film became one of the largest box office successes of the year and received widespread critical acclaim. Jimmy's performance got him his only Academy Award for Best Actor, or Competition Award rather, beating out his former roommate, Henry Fonda. Jimmy, and several others in town, believed the only reason he won was to make up for him losing the year before, as the role in Philadelphia Story was definitely a supporting one, yet he was put in the lead actor category. This happens actually quite a bit, but usually in reverse. Jimmy gave his Oscar to his father, who displayed it in his hardware store alongside other family awards, and it remained there for 20 years. One of Jimmy's last major pre-war films was The Shop Around the Corner, also from 1940, which was clearly the inspiration for You've Got Mail several decades later. Jimmy played a shop worker opposite Sullivan once more, and the two characters bicker in their day-to-day -day at the shop, but don't realize that they've fallen in love with each other through letters they've been writing unknowingly. Ironically, Tom Hanks, who'd take up the Jimmy Stewart role in that film years later, discovered he was actually related to Jimmy Stewart as well, like on a one of those like Chasing Your Roots shows. When the U.S. entered World War II, Jimmy became the first major American movie star to enlist in the U.S. Army. Jimmy came from a military family. Both of his grandfathers had fought in the Civil War, and his father had served during both the Spanish-American War and World War I. Initially, he was rejected for being too thin for his six-foot-three frame in November 1940, but managed to enlist in February 1941 after, so the legend goes, not allowing himself to go number two for several days. Just eat a burger, dude. Since he had some prior experience as a pilot, he ended up in the Air Corps. The 32-year-old was too old to do certain aviation training, but snuck through some of it since he was both a college graduate and a licensed commercial pilot. Jimmy received the rank of second lieutenant on January 1st, 1942, due to this experience. While enlisted, Jimmy's work and public appearances were limited to engagements for the Army Air Forces, and he considered his acting career to be behind him. The Air Corps scheduled him on network radio programs and in the first motion picture unit short film Winning Your Wings, which was produced to recruit airmen. Nominated for the Best Short Documentary Oscar in 1942, it appeared in movie theaters nationwide beginning in late May 1942 and resulted in 150 new recruits for the Army. Jimmy was concerned that his celebrity status would relegate him to duties behind the lines, and after spending over a year training pilots in New Mexico, he managed to get his commander to send him to England in November 1943 as part of a bomb squadron. He would fly on over 20 bomb missions over occupied Europe. 
Jimmy was promoted to major following a mission in Germany on January 7th, 1944. After receiving a series of military honors, Jimmy was promoted to a full colonel on March 29th, 1945, becoming one of just a few Americans to ever rise from private to colonel in just four years. Jimmy returned to civilian life in early fall 1945, but continued to participate in reserve for the Army Air Forces after the war and was also one of the 12 founders of the Air Force Association. That's right, Jimmy Stewart is technically one of the founders of the U.S. Air Force. He would eventually transfer to the reserves of the U.S. Air Force after the Army Air Forces split from the Army in 1947. Unlike his fellow leading men, Jimmy only appeared in one World War II military film, Strategic Air Command. Jimmy's daughter believed this was because, unlike his Hollywood cohorts who enlisted, he'd seen actual combat and it was just too close to home. As far as the rest of his military career goes, Jimmy was promoted to Brigadier General in 1959, becoming the highest ranking actor in American military history. During the Vietnam War, he was flying as a non-duty observer and retired from the Air Force in 1968 when he reached 60, which is the required retirement age for the Air Force. Disillusioned by the war, Jimmy considered returning to Pennsylvania to run the family store. Acting just didn't seem important anymore. While he'd been at war, his agent had left the talent sector and sold his former client's contract to the Music Corporation of America, or MCA. Not really sure what to do, Jimmy decided not to renew his MGM contract, but instead signed with MCA to see if there was anything left for him in Hollywood. His film career rebirth came from Frank Capra, who asked him to star in his next film, It's a Wonderful Life, from 1946, the first post-war film for both of them. Jimmy played George Bailey, a small-town everyman who becomes increasingly frustrated by his ordinary life and monetary struggles. When he's driven to suicide, a quote-unquote second-class angel steps in to show him what his life would look like had he never been born. During filming, Jimmy continued having doubts about his abilities and continued to consider retiring from acting. When released, It's a Wonderful Life was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Jimmy's third Best Actor nomination. But in its day, it only received mixed reviews and was a very moderate success at the box office and actually failed to recoup production costs. Of course, in the 60, almost 70 years since then, It's a Wonderful Life is the film that people probably most associate with Jimmy Stewart. It is considered by the American Film Institute to be one of the top American films ever made. But at the time, that's not how it shook out. It's a Wonderful Life was actually anything but for the filmmaker. Capra's production company went bankrupt as a result of the box office, and Jimmy continued to have doubts about his acting abilities despite being nominated for an Oscar. On top of that, while he'd been away at war, a new generation of actors was on the rise as the early 40s crowd was fading and Jimmy thought maybe I'll fade with them. 
Before he completely did that, though, Jimmy decided to return to making radio in 1946, which he continued this work between films until about the mid-1950s. He also made a comeback to Broadway to start in Harvey in July 1947, replacing the original star who'd gone on vacation. The play had opened to nearly universal praise in 1944 and told the story of Elwood P. Dowd, a wealthy eccentric whose best friend is an invisible man-sized rabbit and whose relatives are trying to get him committed to a mental asylum because his best friend is an imaginary man-sized rabbit. Jimmy would return to the part again the following summer to once again critical acclaim. Jimmy appeared in four films in 1948, the most noteworthy of which is probably Rope, in which he played the teacher of two young men who commit murder to show off how smart they are. This began Jimmy's series of collaborations with director Alfred Hitchcock. Rope was shot in a series of long takes, making Jimmy feel as if he needed to be perfect, as messing up six minutes into a sequence rendered all of the footage before that unusable. The stress led to the actor sleeping very little and drinking very heavily. Rope received mixed reviews upon its release, with some historians calling Jimmy miscast in the role. He just doesn't give off Professor Pibes, I guess. Now in his early 40s, Jimmy had had a few low-key relationships, namely one with Olivia de Havilland, but nothing had stuck long-term. Gossip columnist Hedda Hopper called him, quote, the great American bachelor, but he wouldn't be for much longer. Jimmy had met actress and model Gloria Hatchick McLean at a Christmas party in 1947. He had crashed the party, got super drunk, and just made a horrific first impression on her. A year later, though, friend Gary Cooper and his wife Veronica invited Hatrick and Jimmy to a dinner party where the two hit it off and began dating. They married at Brentwood Presbyterian Church on August 9, 1949, and remained married until her death from lung cancer in 1994. Jimmy adopted Gloria's two sons from a previous relationship, and the couple had twin daughters in May 1951. Despite some career missteps, Jimmy would find success as an on-screen cowboy throughout the 50s and beyond. He'd also continue collaborating with Alfred Hitchcock, which yielded several of his iconic roles. The first Western Jimmy starred in changed the way movie stars got paid forever, or, you know, currently to this day, they're still paid similarly. For the Universal production Winchester 73, which released in 1950, Jimmy agreed to do the film on a couple of conditions. One, he wanted to be cast in the screen adaptation of Harvey if he did the Winchester movie, which of course was the film adaptation of the play he'd done a few years back to great success. What the film Winchester 73 is most remembered for probably is the nature of the deal that was struck with Universal as far as payment was concerned. Jimmy's agent, Lou Wasserman, worked at a deal that would see Jimmy receiving no money up front for appearing in the film in exchange for a percentage of the profits. The movie turned out to be a runaway hit, and Jimmy got a $600,000 payday, which was way more than he would have made otherwise. This move led to numerous stars brokering similar deals, and this was one of several events that led to the fall of the studio system era. To this day, actors and several other above-the-line talent earn residuals on film and TV shows. In December 1950, Harvey was released to mixed reviews. Despite the fact that Jimmy had been well-received when he'd done the role on stage, critics compared him unfavorably to the actor that had originally played the role. Jimmy later stated that he wasn't happy with his performance either. Quote, I played him a little too dreamily, a little too cute-cute. 
The film failed to drum up much in terms of box office, but did yield Jimmy his fourth Academy Award nomination. Like It's a Wonderful Life, Harvey achieved its popularity later on thanks to frequent television runs. Winchester 73 had been directed by Anthony Mann, who directed Jimmy in his next big hit, a western called Bend of the River from 1952. When that did well, the two were greenlit for two further westerns, which were The Naked Spur from 1953 and The Far Country from 1954. Each time the films did well, and with each performance, Jimmy got more comfortable with his western persona, which was a massive departure from the mild-mannered George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy's second collaboration with Alfred Hitchcock was the thriller Rear Window, which became one of the highest-grossing films of 1954. In the film, Jimmy plays a photographer bound to his apartment due to a broken leg who believes he's witnessed a murder. Hitchcock pushed Jimmy during production, uncovering new depths to his acting, leading to one of Jimmy's most nuanced portrayals yet. 1954 was also the year that Jimmy would beat John Wayne in the box office rankings. The following year, Jimmy Stewart was number one on that list. The last completed collaboration Jimmy did with Mann was 1955's The Man from Laramie, which was one of the first westerns to be shot in Cinemascope. After that, he teamed back up with Hitchcock for the remake of Hitchcock's own film, The Man Who Knew Too Much, which released in 1956. Jimmy plays the father of an abducted boy caught up in international intrigue when their young son is kidnapped after they witness a murder in Morocco. A dream came true in 1957 for Jimmy as he was tapped to play his childhood hero, Charles Lindbergh. The film was The Spirit of St. Louis from 1957 and was a big-budget affair with elaborate special effects for the flying sequences, but received only mixed reviews and failed miserably at the box office. Jimmy ended 1957 with The Western Night Passage, which was supposed to be his ninth film with Mann. During the pre-production, however, after continuous fights with the writer, Mann decided to leave the film and never worked with Jimmy again. Night Passage flopped, and Jimmy was so disappointed by the failure that he refused to make a Western for four years. So with Mann no longer being a collaborator, Jimmy went back for another Hitchcock picture, which was 1958's Vertigo, in which he starred as a former cop who becomes obsessed with a woman he is tailing. Like several of his projects, Vertigo was not appreciated in its day, but has since become considered one of Hitchcock's most important films. At the time, however, it was met with bad, well, everything. Hitchcock blamed the film's failure on Jimmy, who was 50, being too old to convincingly play Kim Novak's love interest, as Kim was exactly half his age. I mean, Hitchcock did the casting, so I'm not quite sure how that's Jimmy's fault, but whatever. The repercussions of this were seen with Hitchcock casting Cary Grant in his next film, North by Northwest from 1959, which was a role that Jimmy had wanted. Even though Grant was four years older than Jimmy, he looked much younger on camera, so I'm sure that added insult to injury and the two never made a film together after that. Jimmy and Novak also starred as lovers in the also 1958, but different in that it was a romantic comedy film, Bell, Book, and Candle, which had Jimmy anxious again because of the age gap. And once again, he received poor reviews and the film failed. Luckily for him, it didn't affect his like personal persona because people just absolutely love this dude. So he was he got he got dinged, but he didn't get super it didn't derail his career as well. I'm trying to say. 
John Ford convinced Jimmy to return to the Western genre with 1961's Two Road Together, which was followed up by The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance the following year. The latter is a psychological Western that saw Jimmy playing an attorney who goes against his nonviolent ways when he is forced to confront a psychopathic outlaw. The film also paired the actor with Western icon and sometimes role rival John Wayne. Jimmy would also appear in Ford's final Western, which was 1964's Cheyenne Autumn. In 1962, Jimmy signed a picture deal with 20th Century Fox and appeared in several major box office hits, including 1962's Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation and Shenandoah from 1965. Unfortunately, given the nature of the box office at this time, this is very much in the oh crap, TV's ruining our industry era. For each success, there was a pretty epic failure of a film. Jimmy finished out the 1960s, starring in a series of westerns, including 1965's The Rare Breed and Bandolero from 1968. The actor also started picking up a series of Life Achievement Awards, first the Cecil B. DeMille Awards at the Golden Globes in 1965, and the Lifetime Achievement Award in 1968 from the SAG Awards. He'd also get a Lifetime Achievement from the Academy Awards, and he was also given a Kennedy Awards honor, so he was a very well-recognized professional performer from American cinema. In 1971, Jimmy starred in the NBC sitcom The Jimmy Stewart Show, in which he played a small-town professor whose adult son moves back home. Approaching his mid-60s, Jimmy disliked the amount of work needed to film a television show and was not exactly disappointed when it was canceled after only one season due to bad reviews and poor ratings. Other television roles did follow despite this, including the CBS show Hawkins in 1973, which saw the actor playing a small-town lawyer. He'd win a Golden Globe for this part, but the show was also canceled after only one season. Jimmy would also show up every so often on Johnny Carson's The Tonight Show to share poems he had written from different eras of his life. These poems would be compiled into a collection in 1989. Jimmy appeared opposite John Wayne once more for the latter actor's final film, The Shootist, from 1976. Jimmy played the doctor that gives Wayne's character his terminal cancer diagnosis. By this time, Jimmy himself had a hearing impairment, which affected his ability to hear his fellow actors, which caused him to miss his cues, which caused him to repeatedly mess up and ruin takes. But he refused to wear a hearing aid or even admit that he needed one. So classic 70s male. Jimmy's final live-action feature film was the Japanese picture The Green Horizon from 1980, which was critically panned. The actor only took the role because the film promoted wildlife conservation and allowed his family to go with him to Kenya. After that and some television, Jimmy semi-retired from acting. His final film role was voicing the character of Sheriff Wiley Burp in the animated movie An American Tale, Five Goes West from 1991. After the death of his wife, which devastated the actor, Jimmy became reclusive, spending most of his time in his bedroom, exiting only to eat and spend time with his children. He shut out not just the media and fans, but also his friends. Jimmy was hospitalized for a fall in December 1995. A year later, he was supposed to have the battery on his pacemaker changed, but opted not to do the procedure. On June 25th, 1997, a thrombosis was found in his right leg, leading to a blockage one week later. 
James Stewart ultimately died of a heart attack due to that blockage on July 2nd, 1997. He was 89 and was surrounded by his children at his Beverly Hills home. His funeral was attended by 3,000 people, he received full military honors, and he was laid to rest at the Forest Lawn Cemetery. Jimmy Stewart was an everyman for the ages in that he was an everyman who played every kind of man. His voice and demeanor is just as well known today as it was back at the height of his career. President Bill Clinton stated at the time of the actor's death that America had lost, quote, a national treasure, a great actor, a gentleman, and a patriot. Just a minute now, hold on, Mr. Potter. Just a minute. You're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably... Here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they, do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. My voice is way raspier than I realized it was as I start kept talking, but that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. I am a little behind. I will catch up. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account, which I am caught up on, which features my watch list, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the Buy Me a Coffee. Today, I took a 20-minute drive there and a 20-minute drive back to Quentin Tarantino's new coffee shop. If you don't know, he's reopened the Vista, which I talked about a few weeks ago, but directly next to the Vista, he's opened this cute little coffee shop called Pam's Coffee. And it's very, very cute. And I bought a mug and I'm drinking the latte I got there out of the mug I bought. And I'm quite chipper because I do love a good coffee mug. And there's a lot of like little tat. So I'll definitely back for more tat because I, I do love a good uh, merch. So I, I I love a tchotchke. I'm not going to lie. Um, Yeah. Speaking of tchotchkes and merch, I've also got my own merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, the life and career of Clint Eastwood or his life so far. Anyway, he's old, but he's still very much alive. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Mm-hmm.